0: As you all know, SharpFootballAnalysis.com is the best place for fantasy analysis and betting information. You can choose from season long, four week, or weekly packages that best suit your needs. For this week only, we are having a massive sale providing 50% off any weekly betting subscription. Use code GET50 for 50% off any weekly betting package at (laughs) SharpFootballAnalysis.com. Welcome to the Sharp Angles Betting Podcast. I'm Ryan McChrystal, here with you to talk through some bets we may like in week seven. We're going to do a different format a little bit this week, bringing on a guest, Charlie Goldsmith, a Bengals beat reporter for the Cincinnati Enquirer. We'll do a little bit of a deeper dive specifically on the Bengals-Ravens game. But first, I always like to take a look back at something we learned from the previous week. And this week, I want to start by talking about something that we talked about last week's podcast. Uh, One of the bets I gave out last week was to take the over on Derek Carr's passing yards against the Denver Broncos. And that ended up being a pretty easy win for us. Hopefully you got on board with that. And my reasoning for that was based on Carr's success and his aggressive play against the Blitz and knowing that Denver is a very Blitz-heavy defense. And it really played out exactly as we hoped it would. Carr against the Blitz, these numbers coming from a true media. He was five of nine, 121 yards and zero sacks when Denver blitzed him. So he clearly took advantage of that. He clearly remained aggressive, throwing downfield against the blitz, seeing him do that against such a blitz heavy defense and against a team that has had success against the blitz. I think that really gives us a lot of confidence that when he's in these matchups, we can expect him to, you know, have a successful day throwing the ball downfield and we could potentially try to find some matchups down the road where, you know, he's facing one of these teams that likes to blitz and maybe take advantage of that using the same reasoning, betting the over. And Now it's not something that it's going to be that we can take advantage of every week. I think that we really need to be specific and targeting games when he's facing teams that we are really confident are going to blitz him at a high rate because when we look at his splits, there's some slightly concerning numbers here. Again, some numbers from True Media. These are Carr's numbers overall on the season versus blitz and no blitz. When teams blitz him, he's averaging 11 yards per attempt. That's phenomenal. Obviously, that was a big reason why I liked the over for him last week, and it came through. But without the blitz, he's averaging 7.5 yards per attempt. So, you know, that's a that's mostly because he's being a little bit more conservative when teams don't blitz him you know, knowing who, who their receivers are, knowing that Henry Ruggs and Brian Edwards are capable of winning one-on-one matchups and stretching the fields. My guess is that when teams blitz, he's immediately looking for that one-on-one matchup. If it's out there, he wants to take a shot down the field in that one-on-one matchup because he trusts those guys. And for good reason, they've been winning those one-on-one matchups when they've gotten into those situations. Their downfield passing game has been very good. When teams don't blitz, that matchup might not be there. I'm sure he'll I'm sure he wants to take advantage of it if it exists, but obviously when teams aren't bringing extra pressure those one-on-one matchups often aren't there. So against teams like the Eagles who they played this week that don't blitz a lot, you know, maybe we need to downgrade our, our expectations for him a little bit. Now this week I'm not so sure that I like the under, but based on the fact that the Eagles blitz at the third lowest rate if I were going to have a lean for Derek Carr's passing yards I think I would have to say I would lean towards the under because we've seen him really feast on teams that blitz a lot, and we're not expecting him to face that very much against the Eagles. So, you know, that's really my big takeaway from last week. And I, you know, I think that's something that we should definitely keep in the back of our mind moving forward. It's something I'll check on every week to see what Carr's opponent does again and how they like to treat quarterbacks. If they're going to blitz a lot, I'm probably going to be on the over for Derek Carr again in the future. Now I'd like to welcome in Charlie Goldsmith, Bengals beat reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer. Charlie, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Of course, it's been a minute since the Bengals have had one of these game of the week type tilts, and it's an exciting one. First place is up for grabs.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's why I wanted to have you on, because I think this is potentially the game of the week. Now, obviously, the Ravens may have other plans if they just take care of business, and they're obviously favored by almost a touchdown You know, maybe they just take care of business, and this we start to realize this Bengals hot start was just a little bit of fool's gold based on how their schedule plays out. But first place is on the line, like you said, and so you know I think this is potentially a big game. We'll we'll definitely you know win or lose. I think we're going to learn a lot about the Bengals in this game. So that's why I think going into this week, it's a it's a good one to talk about. Now, off the top, I wanted to start to talk about Bengals big picture a little bit because know. Uh, For those that have read my work on sharp football, you know, going into the season, the Bengals under their season win total was one of the bets that I I gave out. And it's not looking so great right now with them playing for first place. Um, But, you know, the schedule definitely was loaded towards the front towards the front end. You know, even in that, you know, going into the season, I talked about how a three and three start looked realistic for them. And despite you know, knowing that, I thought under six and a half wins was still a good play. But now they've exceeded that; they're obviously at four and two. Uh, so I'm wondering, what, what's your like overall feel for this team right now? Do you think they can still get to seven wins, even though the back end of the schedule it does get significantly more diff- difficult?
1: Yeah, the big surprise for how this has started is that the defense has been a unit. They're not just relying on it, it's a unit that's winning them games. Uh, there were questions. Could Trey Hendrickson, a guy who racked up a lot of, to be honest, cheap sacks on a New Orleans Saints defensive line, be a number one edge rusher? And through the first six weeks, the definitive answer to that so far has been yes. Uh, at linebacker, could Logan Wilson, someone who had only been a third down guy in his rookie season, be an every down linebacker? He has almost twice as many tackles as anyone else on the Bengals, and he has uh, he's second in the NFL in interceptions. And while those two stats don't necessarily make a player great, uh, he he backs that up with just the consistency and the intelligence. He's brought a linebacker and a cornerback. Even though Trey Waynes has been out, uh, Chinobi Awuja has kind of been the biggest surprise. Just by any metric you look at, he's played like a number one cornerback this season. And they've backed that up with a safety duo that's covering more ground and tackling better in the middle of the field. So it's a unit that the Bengals offense really struggled scoring on in training camp. It's a unit that you know, except for basically two plays by Aaron Rodgers, every team has really struggled against this season.
0: Yeah, that's really been a key. I'm glad you brought that up. We'll, we'll talk about the defense again in a little bit. But yeah, you know, that changes a lot of the, some of the issues that they had last season, because when the offense struggled, it was like they had no chance last year. And now th- this year it kind of seems like, you know, if the offense struggles against some of the better defenses that they've played, they might still find themselves in close games, you know, if the defense continues to hold form, which it definitely looks like that. If anything, that's probably a pretty legitimate uh, improvement that we can bank on continuing. Now, I want to talk about this game specifically. I wanted to get into the offense a little bit. And I w- I'm a little bit surprised by this. I'm curious to get your take on this. The Bengals play at the slowest pace in the league right now. They're averaging a play on offense once every 32.2 seconds per play. And, you know, they're obviously very young on offense, but very talented. So I'm a little bit surprised that they haven't tried to pick up the pace and try to. Uh, you know, just light up the scoreboard a little bit more, because I would think in certain matchups, they would be capable of that, but they've kind of taken the opposite approach. So I'm curious, were you surprised by this? Or was this an expectation that you had going into the season? And then going into this bank, this Ravens game specifically, do you think they'll lean into that even further? Because obviously the Ravens have an explosive offense as well.
1: So I didn't know this until we, until you shared that idea with me before this podcast, it's fascinating though. And I've been thinking about it. Uh, kind of the whole point of the Bengals offense and what they view as the way to maximize Joe Burrow's strengths with the strengths of their receivers is identifying the best one-on-one matchup they have on a snap-by-snap basis. So Burrow will let the clock go down to seven, six, five to do two things. One, to get a better sense of any pre-snap motion the defense is going to do. And two, well, three reasons. Two, pre-snap motion by the Bengals offense. Because I would say that's one of the number one hallmarks of a Zach Taylor offense is some sort of pre-snap motion, whether it's a running back going into pass protection, vice versa. Tyler Boyd often sweeps across the one side of the field to the other. So that takes up some time. And three, Burrow uses that time to, as cliche as it sounds, identify the weak spot the Bengals, unlike many teams, have guys in one-on-one matchups who are going to win more often than not, and I guess those i say would be the three factors that have given the Bengals a little bit of an advantage when they use every second they can.
0: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And if we're thinking that that's probably the reason for it, my guess would be that that's probably not something that's going to change on a week-to-week basis. Mm-hmm. So the total for this game is set to forty-seven points. That's obviously pretty low already. So my thought was may- maybe if you said that you thought maybe they could shake it up, maybe the over would be the way to go. But no, that you bring up some really good points, and that definitely makes me think that they probably pretty, stay pretty consistently slow throughout the rest of the season. So for me, with the, the over the total being set to forty-seven points, I would just probably just stay away from that. This seems pretty fair number if we expect the the Bengals to stay at a pretty slow, steady pace on offense. Uh, Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the defense, which you already brought up a little bit. And I was looking back at their matchups from last season, and I noticed a really interesting difference between the two games, specifically about how the Ravens approached Lamar Jackson with the blitz. And it was really interesting. In The first game last year, they blitzed him on 34% of his dropbacks which was higher than their season rate. I assume that that was something that they identified that they could win with going into the game. And it was successful passing the ball. He was only four of 13, one touchdown, one interception versus the blitz. And as I said, that was on about just over a third of his dropbacks. So it was something that they did fairly often and did it well. Then in the second meeting, surprisingly, they only blitzed twice, which was 8% of his dropbacks. Now, neither one of those games were particularly competitive, especially that second game. So that, you know, maybe was a factor, but again, seeing it be so low, that makes me think that it was something again, that was part of the game plan going in because, you know, if, if they wanted to continue blitzing again, I would think they would get more than two blitzes in, even in the first quarter. So it seems like they purposely changed that up despite having success. Now this season, they're also not a heavy blitzing team. It's, they rank 24th in the league at a 19%, rate. So, I'm curious, do you have any read on how they might want to approach Jackson this game in regards to the blitz?
1: Yeah, there's one big question, which I guess will tie into the blitz specifically. So last season, what the Bengals did is they exclusively used a 4-3 defense when they played the Ravens. They started a Keen Davis-Gaither in those matchups. He is someone who is known for his, I guess, speed. He was kind of tracking Lamar off the edge. He's also good in pass coverage. He also played some edge rusher in college, and he was probably the guy blitzing in those first matchups. The second game, the difference was a lot of guys were hurt. DJ Reader was hurt. Some guys in the secondary were hurt. I think Logan Wilson was also hurt at linebacker, so they were really banged up, and it was kind of who do we have left at that point of the season. But blitzing specifically this year is something – the Bengals are probably kind of unique or or more rare in this in that it's almost never the linebackers. It's almost always the slot corner Mike Hilton and the safety Von Bell – they're very good at it. Um, you know, the line they use, they shoot out of a cannon and they really do. That that's been where they send their unorthodox pressure from. It did a lot against Justin Fields and a lot against Trevor Lawrence, who are mobile quarterbacks, the most mobile quarterbacks they faced. So I would think those particular two guys would blitz more often in this matchup, whether or not the Bengals are in their usual 4 2 5 or if I did that math 2 426 or their usual um or their, I guess Ravens centric from 2020, uh four three. That they did last season either way I think the most likely guys to be blitzing are Hilton and Bell that's what they've done most of the season for a team that doesn't blitz a ton though it makes more sense to do it against the mobile QB
0: yeah it definitely makes sense so it does make me kind of think that we could see them do it at a higher rate again and it'll be interesting to see them if they're blitzing with some of the faster players it certainly makes sense to do that if you're going to blitz Jackson do it with some of your faster cornerbacks or safeties because maybe they can actually (laughs) corral him, which linebackers, obviously, that's often a challenge for those guys.
1: And that's that's why they signed Mike Hilton. He was the Steelers' starting nickel corner. You know, Mike Hilton, his tagline for himself that I guess the coaches have – agreed with this. he's one of the best blitzing corners in the league he has done it more than most nickel corners and he's been successful at it as well and he did it successfully against the ravens in previous matchups i'm pretty convinced that one of the big reasons they brought him in and targeted him was for this specific matchup against lamar
0: that's really cool insight. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch. It's it's funny to see. I mean, I guess when Lamar Jackson is in your division, you have to react to it, but it's funny to see so many teams coming up with specific game plans. I have little doubt that the Browns drafting of Jeremiah owusu Koromo was definitely done with Lamar Jackson in mind. That'll also be an interesting matchup to see how they use him when they take the field later this season. So I want to go back to the offense a little bit to talk about one specific area of the game because it's it's an angle that I think might have some betting value, and it's Joe Burrow in the run game. Throw out some—I'll throw out some stats again. Prior to last week, Joe Burrow's rush attempts—he only only four of his rush attempts were legitimate runs. Basically, everything else was either kneel downs or QB sneaks, where he's not really being asked to be a mobile quarterback. But then last week against the Lions, he had five scrambles for twenty yards. So it seems like maybe either he andor the coaching staff are now saying like maybe I'm maybe he's fully at 100% health. And so like you know it's possible that that was sort of like a warm up for this Bengals game. So that's at least sort of how I'm reading into things. So you're obviously much more tied into what's going on there. I'm curious what are your thoughts on that? Do we think that he's healthy and could we see him start
1: to run more now? The answer is yes. There are two turning points for this. In the first two and a half games of the season Burrow wasn't looking to make plays with his legs at all as a product of his knee recovery process after tearing his ACL last season. Then he had one run against the Steelers. He said, I got my swagger back. It was my I'm back moment. But just because he felt that way didn't mean the play calling reflected that. And then here's what happened now point two. After week five, the Bengals coaches really sat down and evaluated third downs. The Bengals were two for 10 on third down runs on from, just from third and short. They were awful. Uh, they they, They were just, in general, a bad team on third and short. They cited that as the biggest reason for holding the offense back. And something they hadn't tried this year that had been successful in 2020 was more plays that opened up opportunities for Burrow to run. And you saw a lot of that uh, against the Lions where, say, receivers went a certain way, opening up a certain part of the field by dragging the attention another way. There was one particular play I have in mind where Burrow ducked under and hit that hole hard. Uh, It's another way, a new way, and a productive way when Burrow is up to it for, for really being successful on third and short.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. I think that definitely increases my confidence in them being able to be competitive in this game. That was obviously such a huge part of Burroughs game at LSU and his Heisman winning season that he, he did it actually less than I expected last year before the injury. And obviously, you know, we, we expected them to be conservative coming into this season. So it'll be, if he's back to full health, and they're going to sort of turn him loose now, it'll be fun to see. I hope that becomes a little bit more of an offense. Cause I definitely think that was maybe something that they didn't take full advantage of last year. So now we've covered a few specific angles. Just I'm curious now, big picture in the game, what's what's your prediction? Do you think the Bengals can keep it close or maybe even pull it off?
1: I have the Ravens winning 28 to 21. I think that while the Bengals will be better against the Ravens blitz than they were last season, I still think that unit has an edge in Baltimore's favor. And I'm as big an advocate as, as a Lamar Jackson for just perennial MVP candidate as you'll find. What's really been stressed to me this season is his ability to beat teams over the top with his arm. And that's something that when the Bengals have faced quarterbacks who can do that kind of just changes everything. You saw that with Aaron Rodgers. Uh, The Bengals still have weaknesses at cornerback that can be taken advantage of. And mostly because of Lamar, but also because of the Ravens defense, Uh, the Ravens wouldn't buy a touchdown.
0: All right. Yeah. So you've got the Ravens covering just barely by covering by a touchdown the spreads at six and a half right now it should be a really fun game as I said at the top you know I, I think this is you know win or lose I think we're going to learn a lot about the Bengals either maybe we learn that they're a pretender and that they benefited from that easy schedule or you know maybe we realize that they're a legitimate threat in uh, what's looking like a pretty strong AFC North so Charlie thanks for joining me this was a lot of fun Yes,
1: yeah, this was a lot of fun good talking to you
0: thanks and enjoy the game All right. So that was some really great info from Charlie on the Bengals Ravens game. I especially appreciate his insight on Burroughs confidence running the ball now because I was already leaning that way. And if that line is available in the single digits, I definitely like betting the over on Burroughs rushing yards. Let's uh, let's move on from there and talk a little bit about some of the other player props that I like this week. And we'll start off with a player that I've been talking about a lot lately. and That's Justin Fields. I like the under on his passing yards this week. I know in the past couple of weeks, I've been fairly complimentary of some of the changes that Bill Lazor has made to the Bears offense. Definitely still believe that. It seems like he's doing a nice job simplifying things for Fields. And I expect Fields to continue to grow as a passer, but he gets the bucks this week. And this is just a really rough matchup for him. You know, one of the things that's really a flaw in Fields' game right now is he can't handle the blitz. It was an issue for him in college. It's still an issue for him now. You know, they're trying to limit his exposure to it, I think, trying to limit the, the decision-making process that he has has on his shoulders uh, post-snap. We've talked about that in past weeks, how they've limited the RPO game and just really trying to simplify things. And, you know, unfortunately, the Bucks blitz at the league's highest rate. They're blitzing on 34, 36.4% of their snaps. So I don't think that there's really anything that they can do to avoid Fields being put in situations where he's being blitzed and he's having to make tough decisions under pressure in this game. Just to throw out a few numbers to back this up, Fields is averaging four yards per drop back when he's blitzed. That 34, 34th out of 35 qualified quarterbacks. And when he's blitzed, he's getting sacked at a league worst rate of 20.5%. So one out of every five times he's blitzed, he is sacked. And that right there is obviously going to have an impact on his passing yards because he's just not even getting the ball off. And I, I don't have any confidence in them coming up with a game plan that limits his struggles against the blitz, because this was an issue he had in college. If we isolate his games against the best defenses he faced last year, defenses that were really capable of getting to him and causing problems, we can highlight four games. It's Northwestern, Indiana, Clemson, and Alabama. Those are the most challenging defenses he faced by a pretty wide margin and in those games, when he was blitzed, he averaged 4.1 yards per drop back against the blitz and was sacked on 12.2% of his drop back. So that matches up pretty well with what he was done in the NFL. As I said, he's averaging four yards per drop back against the blitz, getting sacked 20% of the time. You know, seeing that this was something that he struggled with against good defenses in college, he's continued to struggle with it in the NFL. You know, I applaud the Bears' effort to, you know, simplify things for him, but against a team like the Bucks that blitzes at a high rate and is very successful doing so, I just don't know that they're going to be able to do anything to help him in the passing game. And just looking a little bit closer at the Bucks defense, as I said, they blitz thirty six percent of the time. They might do it at a much higher rate against Fields when they played one rookie quarterback already, Mac Jones. They blitz forty four percent of the time against him. Now, obviously, Jones and Fields are very different types of quarterbacks, but you know, you you want to get pressure on rookies and force them to make mistakes. So I I don't think they'll necessarily have a different approach to field just because he's a little bit more mobile. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, sometimes you want to blitz mobile quarterbacks less simply because certain guys are very good at identifying the blitz and quickly scrambling and causing problems for defenses. Kyler Murray is one of those guys. Teams tend to not blitz him very often because he excels in those situations. He's able to quickly roll out of the pocket so far fields has not been able to do that he's actually he's been blitzed 40 times so far this season he's scrambled once so you know we can look at his skill set and say that he's certainly the type of quarterback who could become good at this he could be the type of quarterback who identifies the blitz quickly rolls out and does damage with his legs but you know right now with one scramble on 40 dropbacks against the blitz i don't see how he's going to be able to quickly adjust and suddenly take advantage of a defense blitzing him especially arguably the best defense in the league the bucks you know at a, at a minimum they're certainly one of the best blitzing defenses in the league so this is just a really really brutal matchup for fields I, I just you know we've seen some teams increase their passing volume against the bucks because their run defense is so bad you know that's that's a possibility in this game but again we've talked about they're they're trying to simplify things for fields so Putting more back on his plate in this matchup against the Bucks, I don't see their coaching staff wanting to go that direction. I think that maybe they just kind of bite the bullet and say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna stick with a fairly conservative game plan like we've had for Fields. If this game gets ugly, so be it. Let's just, you know, survive in advance. Let's just get out of here with everybody healthy. And, you know, let's not crush his confidence by asking him to do too much. So I'm definitely I like the under, the line isn't posted yet. We'll see what it is, but you know, unless it drops dramatically, you know, if it's something like 120 or something crazy like that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like the under for Justin Fields passing yards. Another one that I like Devonte Adams and I like the over and his receptions in this game against Washington. And it has a lot to do specifically with Washington's defense in this game. I'm going after some defenses <laughs> this week, trying to pinpoint some of these matchups that are favorable or unfavorable. And in this case, We've seen defenses really like throwing to the slot against Washington. And it's really, you know, it's been one of the weaknesses that teams have been able to pinpoint against this Washington team this season. Slot receivers are averaging 16.8 targets per game against Washington. That makes up 49% of all pass attempts against the Washington defense. And obviously not all of those are going to go to Devontae Adams. He sees about half of the slot targets for green Bay, but you know, that, that's still a really significant part of the offense. 55% of Adams targets this season have come while he's lined up in the slot. So we should definitely expect him to see, you know, a good workload in the slot. And just because we know that this is a weakness on Washington's defense, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see an even higher percentage of Adams targets come while he's lined up in the slot, because, you know, it would certainly make sense. Obviously multiple teams have pinpointed this as a weakness, If you know it's a weakness, why wouldn't you just put your best receiver in the slot and try to feed him the ball all day long? So Green Bay's coaching staff is certainly smart enough. Aaron Rodgers is smart enough to see that. I would expect to see Rob Adams have a really strong workload in this game to take advantage of that matchup. And, you know, just to throw out some other numbers to back this up, looking at what some other slot receivers have done against Washington this season. I'll just go through their lines for a couple of these guys. Cole Beasley. He had 11 receptions for 98 yards. Keenan Allen had nine receptions for 100 yards. Tyreek Hill, nine receptions for 76 yards. Sterling Shepard, nine receptions for 94 yards. Really high receptions total for all these guys. Not necessarily huge yardage totals, which is why I prefer the reception number as opposed to the yardage for Adams. You know, maybe this is a situation where he has maybe a lower yards per catch number, but just has nine or 10 catches for around a hundred yards and they just continue to feed him the ball in the slot all day long. His prop has been available at 7.5 receptions over under 7.5 receptions. That's been the line almost every week this season. If it's there, I'm definitely on the over, because like I said, I think nine or 10 receptions is very realistic. Now maybe this, this line hasn't been posted yet. Maybe, you know, the odds makers are, onto this as well. And it gets bumped up to 8.5. I would probably still take it at 8.5, but I would just put a a little bit less on it. You know, maybe you're putting one unit on it at 7.5, maybe only a half unit if it's at 8.5. So I would lose a little bit of confidence, but like I said, I'm I'm expecting this to be around nine or 10 receptions for him in this game, because it just just makes too much sense for them not to just continue to line him up in the slot and just pepper him with targets you know, and we're consistently seeing him get at least nine targets a game. So, you know, against this defense, I have no reason to believe that they wouldn't continue to do that. And even, as I said, up his volume a little bit. Another one I like, and this one might be a little bit surprising. I'm taking the over on Jameis Winston's passing yards. Now the saints have become a very run heavy offense, even more so with Winston. It seems like maybe they, Uh, don't necessarily trust him quite as much as they trusted Drew Brees last year. And, you know, for, for good reason, you know, obviously he's much more turnover prone than Brees was. And it seems like they're trying to keep the ball out of his hands a little bit, but I like the over on his passing yards again, based on the defense that he's facing this week, the Seattle Seahawks, I think are a really good matchup for him. And it has a lot to do with the types of throws that Winston makes and what he likes to do when he, when he's asked to throw the ball. Winston holds the ball for at least 3 seconds on 45% of his dropbacks. Back, drop That's among the highest rates in the league and it's actually a really concerning number for a quarterback who isn't an elite scrambler. You know, a lot of the guys at the top of the league in this rate are guys like Lamar Jackson who can hold the ball for pretty much as long as he wants, because he can scramble around a little bit and he can buy time, but that's not Winston's game. When he's holding the ball, he's typically holding the ball in the pocket and he's a little, you know, he's not Im- immobile by any means, but he does tend to stay in the pocket holding the ball, which definitely increases the chances uh, that, you know, teams can get to him, break him down for a second. Also, it's just a little bit easier for the defense when the quarterback is in the pocket. It's easier for those guys in the secondary to read him and see what he's doing. And that's certainly one of the reasons why he has a high interception rate because he holds the ball. It's easy for defenses to read what he's doing and they can get a beat on him. Seattle, however, not very good at that. I don't think that they can prevent him from holding the ball or even challenge him after when he's holding the ball for three or more seconds. This number from true media really stands out. They're getting pressure in under three seconds, on 16.5% of opponent dropbacks. Now that's actually slightly above the league average rate. So they're not necessarily bad at getting the, getting pressure in under three seconds, but you know, that's a pretty low number right there. You know, that certainly seems like if what they're facing a quarterback, like Winston, who likes to hold the ball for a long time, that they're going to be able to do it. And when quarterbacks hold the ball, for at least three seconds, like Winston likes to do, Seattle really struggles. And this is really some of these numbers that I'm going to throw out here are really the reason why I like the over for Winston's passing yards this week. When a quarterback holds the ball for at least three seconds against Seattle, they rank 31st in the league in pressure rate at 45%. So when the play extends, when they can't get that quick pressure, they're not even getting pressure you know, on on those extended plays, so that's a big red flag. It basically seems like when the offensive line stops that initial pass rush, the quarterback's in pretty good shape to take his time back there against Seattle. And obviously, Winston likes to do that, as we said. Similarly, they rank dead last in sack rate after three seconds. When quarterbacks hold the ball for at least three seconds, three point two percent of dropbacks end in a sack. Ranks dead last. So you know, although Winston is definitely vulnerable to being sacked when he's holding the ball for a long time, Seattle probably not able to do that. And again, when holding the ball for three seconds, quarterbacks are averaging 9.8 yards per attempt against Seattle. That ranks 22nd in the league. So not quite as bad as their pressure numbers, but again, 9.8 yards per attempt. That's, that's you know, that's not a number that you want to see if you're a Seahawks fan. And Winston likely is going to have time to stand in the pocket. He's likely going to have time to find his receivers downfield. I would expect the uh, New Orleans passing offense to have more big plays than we've seen from them in past weeks. And, you know, hopefully this is something that the coaching staff is aware of as well. If they are, hopefully they ask Winston to throw more because this definitely seems like they should have more confidence in him being able to take his time make decisions from the pocket without having to worry about some of the mistakes that Winston is prone to. This is not a defense that's going to wreak a lot of havoc in the backfield on Winston. They're probably not a defense that's going to be able to take advantage of him sitting in the pocket, taking his time as he throws the ball downfield. I don't think they should be as concerned about his turnover tendencies in this matchup. So, you know, hopefully it's, hopefully we see a little bit more put on his plate this week, but even if not, just because, we know that when he is asked to throw it's, it's probably going to be a favorable situation for him i like the over on winston's passing yards that number has over the past couple of weeks has been available around 200 yards i'm definitely taking it if it's there if for some reason it makes a big jump it, his number has bounced around a little bit this season just because we're you know obviously we're all learning about what the new orleans offense looks like with winston if it spikes again you know maybe i would get off the number if it's at 225 but and that would be a pretty big jump based on what we've seen with it around 200 over the past couple weeks. I would expect it to maybe get a slight boost to 210 or something like that to account for Seattle's defense. Um, so as long as it's in that 200, 210, 215 range, I'm on the over. You know, I would maybe just stay away if it climbs as high as 225, though. So let's now go into some Thursday night football talk. Obviously, we like to wrap up every week with Thursday night football talks since this podcast is coming to you on Thursdays. Um, and for those that read my uh, weekly article on prop player props on sharpfootball.com, you know, I I typically like to throw a Thursday prop out there, you know, even if it's you know just a you know mediocre confidence level, just because you know we post that early in the week and You know, I like to just throw something out there, at least to have something to talk about. This week, I didn't put anything in my article for Thursday night. The first time I've just avoided it altogether. And we've got Broncos at the Browns. The Browns are favored by two points in this matchup. But because of all the injuries on the Browns, I just have a hard time being willing to bet anything on this game. Because the Browns are favored, I suppose I would say, if anything, I would lean towards Broncos' money line, just because, you know, there's so much unknown about what the Browns are going to look like, especially on the offensive side of the ball, I would definitely lean towards, you know, Broncos money line. But as far as props, I'm, I'm just staying away because there's so much unknown, but I do want to, you know, get into, some, you know, some of their, some of what the expectations we might have for them based on some of the players that they're missing. You know, I can't read through their entire injury report. That would take too long, but just to quickly touch on some of the guys are going to be without, we know that they're without Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and Baker Mayfield on offense. On the defensive side, they're missing Jeremiah Wusukoroma. Those are the players we know that are out. Some key players who are questionable. Offensive line, we got three of them: Jack Conklin, Jedrick Wills, who missed last week. J.C. Treader, their center, is also questionable right now. And on the defensive side, Jadevian Clowney is also questionable, and that's a big one that really stands out for me. We talked about it last week. how You know, Clowney was questionable last week, and I said if they if he was unable to play, I was all in on the Cardinals. Now he did play, and the Cardinals still took care of business. And obviously, I think a lot of the injuries factored into that as well. Last week, you know, again, if, if Clowney, if we find out that Clowney is a no-go, I'm taking the Broncos because you know I'll touch on some of the numbers from last week. You know, last week I highlighted how Clowney, how much their the Browns pass rush improved when Clowney was on the field. I'll throw out some numbers here. Where Clowney and Garrett are both on the field, the Browns are getting pressure 45 percent of the time. So that's when Clowney and Garrett are both on the field. The opposing offenses, when those guys are both on the field, they're generating a negative 4.3 EPA on the season. So that's a tough matchup for anybody when Clowney and Garrett are on the field, just because they're getting pressure at such an elite rate this season. I think you know we can make a pretty strong argument that you know so far at this point in the season. That's the best pass rush duo in the league, Clowney and Garrett. If they're without Clowney, the Browns are in trouble because when either one of those guys is off the field, obviously mostly that's been Garrett playing without Clowney, but there are a few snaps in there of Clowney playing without Garrett in some games this season. When either one of those guys is off the field, the Browns are getting a 27% pressure rate. That's a massive drop-off from the 45% pressure rate that they're generating as a duo. And offenses, when either one of those guys is off the field, they're plus 23.5 EPA. So they're get, the Browns are getting pressured at a much lower rate and opposing offenses are taking advantage of them. So if we find out at some point on Thursday that Clowney is unable to go for this game, you know, I assume the lines will adjust quickly, but if for some reason they don't and you're able to get on the Broncos, especially if they're still underdog at that point, I would definitely be on the Broncos money line at that, in that situation, especially if they're still underdog. The other one that I wanted to talk about is Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, because I looked up some numbers and, you know, knowing that he was going to be out for this game to see how what kind of an impact that might have on the Browns defense. And I was actually really surprised by this. Now, I don't necessarily know that these numbers are going to, you know, affect our approach to betting this game, but I do think it's an interesting conversation to have. I don't, I don't necessarily know what these mean, but I think it's something to throw out. And then, you know, we'll see how the Browns defense looks different in this game without him out there. And maybe we'll learn about learn about it a little bit more. So I was looking at some on-off splits from true media when JOK is on or off the field. And I, I just looked at plays outside the red zone because obviously both offensive defense schemes change a little bit in the red zone. So the Browns defense, when JOK is on the field outside the red zone, Opposing offenses are generating plus 10.5 EPA. So they've actually been very bad when he's on the field. And I was surprised to see that because when he's off the field, outside the red zone, opposing offenses are generating negative 4.3 EPA. So not only are, are opposing offenses having success when he's off the field, but when he's on the field and when he's off the field, the Browns defense seems to get substantially better and starts shutting down Offenses a little bit, and on a yards per play basis, the same splits. When he's on the field, they're averaging six point one yards per play. When he's off the field, four point two yards per play. I was really surprised by those numbers. I threw those out on Twitter on Wednesday, and you know some, some people responded with some theories. One theory was that he plays on passing downs at a much higher rate. I looked into that. And that's slightly the case. Teams are running the ball thirty six percent of the time. Again, we're looking just at. Uh, outside the red zone when he's on the field and teams are outside the red zone they have a 36% run rate when he's off the field 38% run rate that's a pretty negligible difference so I don't think we can chalk it up to teams just passing more and obviously you're expecting you know to have more efficient offenses if you're throwing at a high rate I don't think we can explain it away with that someone else threw out the possibility that he's playing a lot of third and long situations but Brent and the Browns have not been very good in those situations and again, when he's on the field, third and long situations, opponents are converting 41% of the time. When he's off the field, opponents are converting 30% of the time. So again, in those third and long situations, it been much worse when JOK is on the field. This really surprised me because I, watching the games, I've had a positive impression of JOK. He seems to be making plays out there. He seems to be adding value to the defense from you know, what I can see watching, but I haven't gone in and really dissected the film. You know, it's very possible that there's, you know, that he's making mistakes that, you know, just as watch from watching the game on game day, you know, as, you know, just casual viewers watching it for the first time, we're not picking up on. So maybe we're seeing those splash plays and we're missing the plays where he's out of position, where he's not filling a gap against the run or, you know, where he's making a mistake, dropping back in zone coverage or whatnot. Those are certainly things that, you know, as we're watching on game day, we're not necessarily picking up on right away. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's a scheme thing. Maybe it's just how they're deploying him. Isn't working. Obviously he's a very unique piece on defense. He's a linebacker, safety hybrid kind of player. He kind of do everything. So, you know, maybe they're just not quite using him in the way that they should, or maybe they're not quite putting the right guys around him to highlight his strengths and mask his weaknesses. I don't know. That, that, that's an interesting, interesting question. You know, maybe, you know, hopefully uh, it, you know, it'd be really interesting if a Browns beat writer or someone who, who follows the team, you know, a little bit more in depth and looks at some of the film more closely had some insight, you know, if anyone, uh, comes across that, feel free to reach out to me and send it my way. I would definitely be curious to see that because right now, like I said, I'm not sure how to approach this from a betting angle. But I thought those numbers were worth throwing out there, especially since now we'll get a full game to see how the Browns respond without him. You know, based on these on-off splits, maybe the defense improves without him. It, it's certainly a possibility. But again, just just because my perception was that he's making plays out there, I'm a little hesitant to say that we should immediately expect that. Uh, and then obviously the other injuries are going to factor in well you know if, if they play this game without him and without Clowney you know I, I think we kind of just have to like throw this game aside and say you know this this was this game was just an outlier all the injuries just kind of ruined this game for them and we'll just throw it aside and move forward but you know if Clowney plays, you know this could be a good opportunity for them to for us to you know gain a little bit more insight into what effect uh, JOK is having on this team but Again, from a betting perspective on this game, it's mostly just to stay away. You know, I Definitely lean Broncos. And then, as I said, if Clowney is out, then I really become interested in the Broncos because he's he and Garrett have just been wrecking offensive lines together. And if Garrett's asked to do that on his own, I think the Broncos can probably handle the Browns' defense pretty easily. So that's where I stand on that game. That's all for today's show. Thanks to Charlie Goldsmith for joining us and providing us with some really strong insight into that Bengals. Ravens matchup. Hope you all have a profitable weekend and I'll catch you next week.